Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 76. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide, and in 1999, I founded the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident outdoors by using traditional skills, a few simple tools, and field-based experience. Whether you're looking to go from city slicker to competent outdoor professional, want to experience a remote expedition, or just want to learn a few new outdoor skills, we've got you covered. You can check out the show notes to this and all of our podcasts at blog.jackmtn.com. When you're there, click on the podcast button. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Lastly, the best way to keep up with our programs and trips is to join our email newsletter. And you can do that at jmbnews.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. This is episode number 76, recorded in the Guide Shack. At 7 a.m. on August 23rd, 2019, it is a Friday, and we had a beautiful, cool night um, last night. So much so, for some reason, I woke up just before 5 this morning and was outside looking out where the sun comes up over Squapan Ridge to the east of us, and the entire river valley was filled with mist. And then I saw the sun stick above the ridge, a little sliver, posted a photo, but it was absolutely beautiful. Um, love these mornings where we, after being tortured by bugs for most of the summer, you get these cool nights where you can, you know, stand still outside for a little bit without having to dance around and swat at mosquitoes. And it is pretty glorious. By this, by this time of year, you really appreciate the, uh, time without bugs coming after you. Yeah. I really like the outer world and its coldness feeling the same as I do inside. That's what I appreciate the most about it. Yeah. Yeah. Tim and I are in a really good place this morning. <laughs> my heart is black like my coffee. Um, and my dog. Yeah, and your dog. And my magic. So today is the last day of week two of the fall 2019 wilderness bushcraft semester. We've been pretty busy getting after it. We've been working on bow drill fires and we've got our first shelters up. Um People are working on making cordage and knots, and we've made ropes. Uh, I started on the big pro- one of the big projects up here, which is hammocks yesterday. They started on the needles to make those. Yeah, we carved netting needles, and now we'll get into weaving old-school salmon or trout nets that uh, aren't legal. So we string them between two trees and sleep on them and call it a hammock. Yep. Um, yeah. One of the cool things we do with regards to... Uh, you know, making sure that the the stuff that people make is up to snuff. With regards to making cordage, people have to make 10 feet of handmade, reverse-wrapped, all-natural cordage, and it has to be strong enough where they can hang from it and suspend their body weight for 10 seconds. And uh, I think we only have one that's completed that so Mm -hmm. far, this course. Yeah, so we'll have to get on them for that. Um, One of the other things that we're doing this course, uh, we haven't done it for a while, But the state of Maine is having a trapper's education uh, two-part class in order for people to get their trapping license. Um, So we have, uh, we offered it up to the students 
And we did the first session. The second session is all day tomorrow on Saturday. But then as a result of successfully passing the class, everybody can get their trapping license in Maine. You basically get a card saying that you took the class, very similar to like a hunter safety card. But the cool thing is that there's reciprocity with all 50 states. So I think none of the people on the course are residents of Maine, but they can take that card and go to their home state and get a trapping license. Um, and I highly recommend if you're out there, if you're interested in survival, if you're interested in living off the country, definitely go. It's worth your time to go and get a trapping license and set a few traps um, because you're going to learn a lot about catching animals. You're going to learn a lot about animal ecology. And that's going to be the, the point of our talk today of this podcast is we're going to talk about tracking animals. Um, but by by going out and trying to trap them with legal means, which means modern steel traps, you're going to learn a ton about trapping animals. And you're going to learn a ton about their ecology and their habits. And uh, although deadfall traps and things aren't legal anywhere, we still study and teach them because they're fascinating from the perspective of human knowledge and, you know, the original machines that our species created. Um, and if, you know, I always like to say that if someone really wanted to uh, learn how to become proficient with primitive trapping, because it's not legal, uh, step one, learn how to make good primitive traps. Step two, get a trapping license and learn how to catch animals with modern steel traps. And then those two uh, lines will intersect somewhere in the future. So if you know how to catch the animal and to make the trap, then it's not hard to make the trap to catch the animal. I do have an uh, acquaintance. Uh, we've never met in person. We're sort of internet friends. Uh, Caleb Musgrave from Ontario is a native Canadian First Nations uh, man. And we've corresponded because I'm fascinated because he runs a trap line every year. I think half of it is modern traps, half is primitive traps. And I think that's a really neat uh, way to go about learning and passing on those skills. So one of these years, uh, I would love to get up there and um, figure, <laughs> we're watching Christopher's dog crawl under one of the chairs here. There's probably like a piece of wood with a bit of butter or something on it. Who knows? She's not clever, but geez, <laughs> she's cute. Uh, yeah, so one of these years I'd love to get up there and chase Caleb around in his trap line, but it just seems to get harder and harder to get away every year. Anyway, we've got a full day scheduled of that tomorrow, uh, so we'll be up and out of here at 6. It's about an hour and a half drive up to New Sweden where they're having it, uh, just north of Caribou, and uh, won't get back till late. So Yeah. Yeah, so we figured a good a good pairing with that would be for the students to learn a little bit about tracking this morning and start to do uh, the animal or the mammal studies we have them do while they're uh, while they're on the course. Yeah, so tracking is one aspect of the natural history of the mammals that we have here, and that's how we approach it. But we're going to get into that in just a minute. We have a couple other things to touch on. Um, Number one, upcoming events. Uh, if you're a listener to this podcast, you're aware that we are hosting the Brushfire Rendezvous here in Massardis, Maine at the Field School, October, I think, 11, 12, 13. Yep. Um, so if you're able, you should come on out for that. I think we're charging 15 bucks a day to cover our expenses that we'll have for people coming. So shouldn't break the bank. Um, but we'd love to see you there. Another great uh, just great event that's coming in November in Vermont is the Snow Walkers Rendezvous. So if you're remotely interested in 
winter travel, traditional winter skills, hot tent camping. Um, you should do all you can to attend that. It's located in Fairley, Vermont, which is just north of White River Junction, Vermont, right off Interstate 91. Real easy to get to. Beautiful venue, great people, fantastic food. For years, um, uh, I would teach there and run workshops. Uh, last year, I didn't. This year, I'm not going to be able to. Uh, but they usually have a lot of really interesting people teaching there. Um, yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. I'll be running um, the... Specific program isn't totally set in stone yet, but I'll be running um, some breakaway stuff for them while we're there. So it'll be good to see you guys all out in the woods while it's snowing. I think it's the first weekend in the first weekend in November every year. The first full leave, so or maybe I'm, it's the second. Yeah, I'd have to look at it. I don't have it right in we'll front put of me. The, but... We'll put a link in the show notes. So if you're my see, busy, crazy schedule, you know, I just it's hard to keep it all in line. If you're listening to this on an app and whenever we say show notes, you can always click through and find or just Google Jack Mountain Bushcraft blog. And then you can read all the show notes and stuff and the links that we had and add yeah. into it. Um, yeah. Other thing we wanted to talk about and sort of a new a new thing for this podcast is we wanted to discuss what we are reading and one of the things that we're getting into with the bushcraftschool.com online network is we've had a number of members say they want to start a reading group, um, which we are definitely going to facilitate and do. Um, it'll probably start, I'm guessing, in November because it's hard for us to do when we're here at the field school. We're way off the grid. But once we get it started, there's ways that we can keep it going. Um so if you're interested in that, then look us up at bushcraftschool.com and you can join that community and be part of the reading group. But what uh, what are you reading now? Uh, I'm rereading Nature First, Outdoor Life, The Freelance Leave Way by, uh, well, it's by a bunch of people. It's a collection of essays about freelance leave in Scandinavia and in Canada. And it's edited by Bob Henderson and Nils Vikander. And it's... Uh, it's one I probably reread once a year. Just I, a lot of... I read that book once a year, yeah, I bet, too. Yeah, it's just there's so much good stuff in it, just about um, sort of a less uh, impactful approach to being outdoors and just, yeah, just a simpler way of enjoying being outside without all the need for engines and crazy gear and stuff like that. sleeve is a Norwegian term that loosely translated means open air life, Correct, correct. correct. Yeah, and, it, and that's sort of the whole approach is that it doesn't have to be some big crazy expedition for you to enjoy being outside. You could also just, I don't know, it could be a walk on a Sunday afternoon with your family and be just as powerful. And I think that, yeah, I think that plays a big part in a lot of what we teach up here. Awesome. Yeah, I actually met Bob Henderson several times. Is that is that my copy? No. Okay. This is my copy. He signed a copy of that for me. Uh, I actually met him at the Snowwalkers Rendezvous. Oh, great. Great guy. I think he just retired. He was a university professor in Canada, uh, but fantastic guy. Has done a lot of great work. Uh, I think I have all the books he's published, and um, that's what's super cool about Snowwalkers Rendezvous. I like to tell the story. It was a few years ago. I was standing, and I might have been standing talking to Bob Henderson. And a couple of other people, and there's, there was a woman there who was, seemed to be just a, a couple of years older than me, um, but very nice lady. And then she excused herself from the group because she had to go give her talk. 
And it turns out that she had just completed the first all-female unsupported expedition to the North Pole. And it was like her, I don't know, 10th, 20th, I don't remember, expedition to the North Pole. So I can barely make coffee this morning. She's walked to the North Pole yeah, quite a few times. That's but pretty great. That's the cool thing. It's such a small, intimate gathering that you're talking with people who are, you know, internationally known in their field. But because it's such a small, intimate gathering, you're just sort of sitting around the table having coffee and, and just talking with them. So it's not like a big fancy like trade show where you know they get the the people that you never interact with because they're just up on stage and they've got their handlers around them. It's not like that at all. Just small, intimate, and cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward to to being there, meeting everybody. So I'm super excited. The book that I'm currently working on, although I've haven't made it quite through the introduction yet because it just arrived, but an old friend of mine from. Uh, the reality television show that I was on. Uh, John Hudson has published an awesome book called How to Survive. It's got great reviews. I'm just getting into it and will uh, definitely give you guys the skinny on the book when I get further into it. So maybe the next podcast we'll talk more about books, but super excited. John is the United Kingdom's, the United Kingdom military's chief survival instructor and just a great all-around guy. And he once devised this this really evil plan where he dropped me on top of a mountain in Norway with a boat. <laughs> and a unicycle, if I recall. And a unicycle and a few other things. But uh, just a fantastic guy. Um, and I'm really looking forward to getting into the book. So uh, it's, as I said, we'll revisit this next episode. But my guess is that it's going to be one that you out there in podcast land are probably going to want to get. Maybe that, like, just because we're talking about tracking, maybe the unicycle is, like, the key to outfoxing somebody that's tracking you, is that you start on a bike and what if, then halfway what if, through... Could you out, what if it's a fox tracking you? Could you outfox a no, fox? No, you can't outfox a fox. Because if you did, what would the fox say? Nee, 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 <laughs> nee, 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 Right? I don't know. Uh, yeah, it depends on the type of fox, really. Yeah. Arctic, Arctic fox have a, a stronger accent, so it's not so much nee, 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 it's nah, nah, nah. Is an Arctic fox a fial raven? I can't go any further with this. I don't know. Yes. Yes. yes it is. Ah, it's all circling back. It's all circling all back. All circling back around. The land of fancy, expensive trousers. Are they fox fur trousers? I don't know. I really don't know. What do the pants say? I don't, I don't know. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Yes, please. Let's talk about mammal tracking. Um... You know, first of all, why do we do it? Why is it of interest? So if you're a trapper, if you're a hunter, if you're an ecologist, or if you're just curious about the critters that live in the woods or in the fields near where you are, you know, tracking is a way to determine who's there and, you know, how many of them there are and things like that. A good example, here at the field school, most nights, most clear nights, we can hear the coyotes. Oh, yeah. I've never seen a coyote here at the field school, right? I mean, I've seen them on the road and stuff, but I mean, walking around in the woods, they're pretty secretive. They don't, they don't want to interact with us, but you can hear them. And then definitely we see scat, we see tracks, and especially once the snow starts to fall, then we definitely see the, you know, and realize that they are around. And there are lots of other animals that, you know, without, without the ability to track them, you're just not going to see them. Like I've never... I've never like sat and uh, had a pine marten run by. It just has never happened to me before, but I do see their tracks. Um, so, you know, to understand the landscape you're living on, 
to determine the critters that are living there and if you're actively engaged in hunting or trapping. Uh, those are all really good reasons to why you should be interested and want to learn how to decode nature's signs. <clears throat> um, so I'm going to give you guys the basic talk that we'll give to our students in a little bit, but there are three major types of tracking. Number one, clear print analysis. Number two, pattern tracking, uh, sometimes called gate tracking, G-A-I-T. And the third one is sign tracking. So the clear print analysis is when you get the perfect little print in the mud or in real shallow snow where you can see all the toes, you can see the claws, you can see the hair, you can take measurements on all those things um, and you know retrieve a lot of data points from that. So in the ecology that we have here in northern Maine, you never see those in the woods unless you have the perfect snow conditions. So when we're doing clear print analysis, we're usually on the road, like mud puddles in the road. And those things like that where you often will see the perfect footprint, uh, we call those track traps. So we will go from track trap to track trap looking for those clear prints that we can then take a lot of measurements and get data on. So other places we see them, you know, if it's a waterfront, sandy beach, muddy beach, muddy riverbank, uh, those are sort of the only places that we see that, those, you know, those perfect clear prints. Um, yeah, I always like to say I've seen, I've watched a moose walk through the woods and then walked right over to where I know he stepped and I have trouble sometimes locating that print of a thousand pound moose right yeah. so the ecology we have here just not super conducive to clear print analysis like say for example more sandy soils like in the southwest desert or or you know any place with sandier soil so number one clear print analysis number two is pattern tracking or gate tracking and this is the classic driving by a snowy field in the winter time so you know based on the way the tracks are arranged the pattern we can usually get pretty good insight as to who made those tracks based on the the patterns and the spacing other places you can be successful with pattern tracking and one of the best places to learn is to go to a beach that has a big low tide line so when it's low tide there's a ton of sand that's wet but is not underwater. So, because basically the tide comes in, flattens all that sand out, the tide goes out, you've got that perfect substrate or that perfect ground for looking at pattern tracks. So, when we're down by the coast, we'll go to the beach often, and you can play little games where you try to say, guess what happened here? So, maybe one person, if you, a person you're you're working with, they turn their back and you do something and walk by and then they have to interpret the tracks and try to figure out what went on. It's also interesting to watch people walking their dog there and then, you know, if the, the person has a funny walk or a limp or something and then you watch the dog and then you watch them walk by, then you go look at the tracks and that's really, really helpful for learning. <clears throat> and then the third type of tracking is called sign tracking. And sign tracking is any mark left by an animal that is not a footprint. So sign tracking uh, incorporates such things as scat, such things as chews or other places where the animals were feeding, such things as trees that beaver tried to cut down. Uh, a beaver dam would be a sign track. So any mark that the animal left on the landscape that's not a footprint. Yeah, we actually, I meant to mention this to you the other day, but we actually have a couple going on in the pond right now. Um, 
we threw a bunch of mussels into the pond just to kind of keep boosting that ecosystem. And uh, pretty much every day for the last week, I've been seeing mussel shells shattered right along the bank. So something's getting into them. I haven't really figured out what yet, but something. I always wanted to throw, in a perfect world, I'd be able to throw the mussels from Brussels into the pond. And by that, I mean Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah. And then we could track him. I think that would be that would be really... Oh, man, I'd be afraid to track him, though. He'd yeah. probably have a bicycle and a unicycle stashed somewhere in the woods to get away from us. Well, you never know. He's smarter than we are. He's definitely smarter definitely than we smarter. are. Definitely smarter. And has more muscles. Yeah. And is from Brussels. He is from Brussels. But I just think it would be a neat little rhyme if... Yeah. Yeah. What if Christopher Russell was killed by the muscle from Brussels? Well, killed is pretty strong. Well, it's Jean-Claude Van Damme. He, what doesn't, if he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do anything halfway. What if he just took you to get coffee or something at the diner in town? I'd feel let down. He's really? Such, he's such like a tough guy. Yeah. I, I want the full experience of Jean-Claude Van Damme. I don't want to just be taken out for coffee. I All want right. to die. I, well, if you're listening, Jean-Claude Van Damme, I would rather just go get a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah there's sign tracking anything left by the animal that's not a footprint <laughs> so what do we do with tracks so okay uh you know how do we approach learning them so three steps to that as well step one we locate them step two we identify them and then step three we interpret them <clears throat> So locating is where the practiced eye of someone who's been at it for a while is probably going to be a lot more successful at it than someone who's brand new at it. So when we do locate them, how do we identify them? And this is a big, important part. Uh, so the way that we work to identify them is to measure, take as many measurements and gather as much data as we can. And the more data points you have, the more likely that your uh, identification of that critter is going to be legit, right? Um, what we try to stay away from is going with a gut instinct, right? So the tendency of our brain is when we see something is to jump to a conclusion. And that's a horrible thing to do with tracking. And it's even worse if you're tracking by yourself, because if I'm out there by myself and I allow my brain to jump to conclusions and there's no one there to call me out and say, no, you're, you're clearly wrong or there's no data to support that. So if there's no one there to challenge you when you jump to conclusions and you're by yourself, you're going to be right 100% of the time <laughs> in your mind. In reality, probably not so much. Um, so... It's important to note that we can't always, from the data available, determine what animal made it, made the track. You know, sometimes we can eliminate a few animals uh, from it. So, for example, if there's a fresh moose track in the mud, I could eliminate most, maybe all of the mice that we have in this part of the world. Unless they're working together. <laughs> Unless they're working together. <laughs> uh, so, so... I mentioned that it's an awful thing to jump to conclusions. So what we try to train people to do when we're teaching tracking here is to jump to exclusions. Jumping to exclusions is a super positive thing. So even if we can't determine exactly what the animal is, we can rule out as many of the other mammals or, or birds or whatever that we have on the landscape here. So say if there's a potential, uh, say there's a track and it could be, it looks like it's either four toes, whatever. It looks like either a canine or a feline, right? So when I see that 
that uh, shape of track, I see that pattern, I can eliminate things like the deer family. I can eliminate the weasel family. I can eliminate raccoons. I can eliminate beavers. And the more things that I can eliminate by jumping to exclusions, then I get my pool of potential uh, characters for who it could be. I get that down to as small of a pool as I can based on the evidence that I have. And then, you know, it's okay to leave it there. Then you can take a guess, you know, just, you know, maybe you have a gut feeling at that point and, and knowing how the subconscious works, gut feelings aren't necessarily bad, uh, but you have to have put in a lot of time to sort of train that subconscious to be able to work effectively like that. But the point of the exercise, the point of me discussing this now is to say jumping to conclusions equal bad. Jumping to exclusions equal good. 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 Yeah. Yeah. There was a joke in there somewhere about the usual suspects when you're talking about it being a lineup and one of them, I just think of Kaiser Soze having a limp and there was a joke in there, but I missed it. I just figured I'd share that with you guys. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Do with that information what you will. Uh, I'm only halfway through my first cup of coffee, so a little slow. So if you're a longtime listener to our podcast, you know that our educational... Um, approach to things is always to have students take an active role it's it's very rarely just something passive where we passively discuss abstract information so actively what can we do with tracks and tracking well number one we can pour plaster track casts so you can go to like a big box home improvement store and get a big bag of plaster of paris um, you may have worked with it when you were like a little kid in, in art class or something. But you mix up plaster of Paris with water into a slurry. You pour it into a track. You let it set for about 10 minutes. And then you have an exact representation or exact, I should say, an exact replica of the track that was on the ground. And that's a really neat thing because people like to walk away from a workshop with something. Something tangible. So if we go out tracking, it's sometimes really fun to pour plaster track casts um i have friends who would run uh workshops for school kids they would get one of those big tupperware bins that they sell at the big at like the walmarts and stuff fill it up with playground sand and then moisten the sand and then with all the different track casts they have they would you know uh, make a model of the animal walking through the sand and it's all portable and it's a pretty neat thing to do and it really lets the kids get into it um, so that's a neat thing that you can do with plaster track casts another thing you can do uh, which is super cool is photograph the tracks scat sign uh, and ultimately hopefully the mammals as well if you spend a lot of time out so those photographs can be super interesting you know if you have any books on tracks or tracking and there are a bunch of great ones out there um you know, Paul Resendez, Mark Elbrock, uh, there are lots of awesome tracking books out there. And, and the reason these books are awesome is because these individuals have taken fantastic photographs of tracks that we as readers of their books can learn from. So you can definitely photograph the tracks. You can uh, also collect sign. So collect things like beaver chews on small aspen sticks along the river. And then, you know, you can look at it and see the big ridge between the beaver's two front teeth when they snipped the stick in half. Um, another thing you can do is collect animal scat. 
kind of gross, but you can definitely make it so that it is not super gross. And the, the method for that is you get some brown paper lunch bags um, and then you harvest... That's probably not the right word. <laughs> Definitely not the right word. You collect the scat, put it in the brown paper lunch bag, and let it really dry out, right? So you're going to dry that in a, in a place with good ventilation and warmth. And then when it's really dry, you get that spray-on like polyurethane. It's kind of like spray-on varnish, but it's made out of plastic. And you put a you know four or five nice coats of polyurethane on there. And then the stuff, it doesn't smell. You know, it's basically poop coated in plastic at that point. Um, you don't want to, you definitely, if you're going to be showing that to people like school groups and stuff, you definitely want to have the coating on it. There are diseases that people could catch mm -hmm. from like raw scat on the good, bad scale. That's very bad. Don't, don't do that. Don't be that person. Um, so if you're going to mess around with that, make sure that you dry it and definitely coat it with the, with the polyurethane. Um, but you know, in the back of, uh, in the back of James Halfpenny's book, mammal tracks of north america i think that's the title i hope i didn't butcher it there's a like a color glossy section with pictures of all sorts of scat and then there's a key like a few pages later so that's the fun game that you can play with your friends at your next cocktail party is who can identify the animal scat <clears throat> and from the book and then if you have a bunch of stuff that you've gathered in the field you know you don't even need the book you can do that for real what kind of parties do you go to i don't i don't I don't uh, get invited to parties. Ah, did um, did you used to? Once. Did you bring this game to the party? Yes. That's why. I'm, I feel like you're trying to make a point here, but I, I'm not grasping. Don't it. bring poop to parties, Tim. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that people appreciate it as much as maybe you or I would. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. You're right. You're right. I'm watching out for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, lots of things that you can do with those tracks to help people to help people learn um, and there's an interesting thing that when you, for example, when you first learn, uh, to identify common mullen, right? Verbascum thapsus, it's a, it's a biennial plant and we will use these stalks to make hand drill fires. So when you first learn to ID that, and you, maybe you're getting into making hand drill fires, uh, suddenly you start seeing it everywhere. And I think it's always been there, but when you start to know what to look for, you just start to see th see it everywhere. And I would definitely say the same thing goes for tracks. That when you start getting into tracks and tracking, you know you're you know what you're looking for. You just start to see these things everywhere. You start to see animal sign everywhere. And um, as we go through and study the tracks of the different animals as part of our mammal studies that we do for our semester course. It's important to note that tracking is one aspect of studying the natural history of the animal, right? The, the footprints that you see in the mud do not exist in a vacuum. Um, so it's important, I think, if you to get the most out of tracking, that you need to study the entire animal, right? Study its life cycle, study its habitat. What does it eat? What's its dominant sense? You know, is it driven by its nose, for example, like a dog or a bear? Is it driven by its eyes? Are they the dominant sense, for example, like with birds of prey? So when you under, start to understand the animal, you start to understand, you know, more about it. And then the tracks start to make sense, like when you're interpreting the tracks. So important to study the, you know, the entire, the entire critter. Because when you do, for example, um, 
say if we're talking about moose, right? And once I know something useful about a moose, once I've studied it, seen the track, seen the scat, um, you know, I've paddled by moose on the river quite a bit. I've paddled next to them on big lakes. Pretty cool to paddle your canoe next to a big bull moose with a huge rack, uh, you know, when he's he's charging hard across a lake. And I consider myself a pretty fast uh, and efficient canoeman. Um, and I have a really fast boat too, my 20-foot wood canvas boat, super fast boat, sharp entry and exit lines. And I remember paddling across uh, Churchill Lake on the Allagash, and there was a big bull moose there. And I'm paddling as hard as I can, sort of sprinting, uh, sprint paddling across it, trying to keep up, and the thing was still pulling away from me. And I figure I was going at least five miles an hour. You know, not for not for like a miles, but, you know, for a yeah. good good couple hundred yards. And so uh, they can swim really fast. Yeah. But my, my long-winded point is that, you know, when you start to understand the animal and then you want to go track the animal, you understand its habitat. You know where it's going to be and you know why. You know what its food sources are. So I know, for example, this time of year in the summertime, warm weather, moose are just going to be around wetlands because they subsist almost entirely off aquatic vegetation this time of year so you know that's the sort of thing that if we were like on top of a gravel granite mountain in the summertime you know and i see some sign some hair something that looks sort of like a moose print i'm going to really second guess myself as to whether that could be a moose print based on what i know about its ecology and where it likes to live yeah it's sort of you know what you were saying earlier is if you're if you start tracking and you're alone you're going to be right 100% of the time. And I think that what the mammal studies do is they build up a second person inside your head to kind of throw up the, the hey, wait a minute flag. You know, if you are if you see something and start to wonder. Um, what if there's already a second person in my head? Would this be the third person? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, uh, yeah, so the point I'm trying to make is that you, you're not always going to have a person with you when you see tracks in the woods, um, especially if you're a person that just likes hiking on your own. So as you do the mammal studies and understand the ecology of the place you're in more and more, you build up um, you build up that that second person or third person in your head to or fourth or fourth person, depending on what uh, style of writing you're pursuing. Um, but yeah, you build up you build up a way to kind of second guess yourself and say, yeah, that kind of looks like I don't know an otter, but I'm in the middle of the woods. Why would an otter be out here? It has to be something different. What could it be? And you start eliminating stuff as you go, based on your own knowledge of the animals on your landscape. If it's an, you think it's an otter in the middle of the woods, it's probably a fisher or Blake. Or, or Blake. <laughs> if it's an otter in the middle of the woods, it's either Christopher or Blake. River Otters Rule. River Otters Canoe Club. River Otters Outlaw Canoe Club. Outlaw Canoe Club, sorry. <laughs> Get it right, man. <laughs> We're some dangerous hombres. Yeah, that's great. That is great. <laughs> but yeah, that's sort of the only, that was the only point I was trying to make is that you can't always have somebody with you and the way to deal with that is to build up your own knowledge of the ecosystem and kind of be willing to call yourself on whether or not you're right because of the knowledge that you have yeah and when you study these things it just makes you a more rounded outdoors person um you know more rounded ecologist and you know for me anyway it's fun i, I like to oh, do yeah. it because i think it's fun and, and super interesting it's not i love looking down and trying to figure out like who made that 
mark on the ground. And why? And what were they doing here? So it's it's a, a never-ending source of interest to me. Yeah, and I think it's a pretty, um, you know, I've read things before that as human beings, we're very like story oriented. And I've read some arguments that tracking was the first time that we sort of had that abstract storytelling in our head where we could look at a thing that had already happened and sort of come up with what was going on based on the stuff we saw in front of us. Yeah, that was uh, Louis Liebenberg's book, Mm -hmm. which I think you can get online for free now. If not, maybe it's on Kindle. What was the art of tracking? Yes. He's a South African Mm. uh, wildlife tracker, wildlife manager, and wrote this really interesting book. Uh, tracking is sort of the human's first science. Yeah. So we talk a lot about evolutionary biology, evolutionary development here. Like I mentioned earlier, we talked about deadfall traps as humankind's first machines and tracking maybe as the origin of abstract thought. So you can end up having, you know, even if you're looking at poop on the ground, it can lead to really highbrow conversations. Yep. Unless you bring it to a party. Yeah. Then you just get thrown out. Well... You got thrown out, Tim. Asked not to you come back. You got thrown out. Okay. Okay. <laughs> physically, though. Okay. All right. Not physically. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Just asked to leave. But yeah. Oh, well. Whatever. Oh. Framing's everything. Tim. Framing is Framing everything. Framing is everything. So I guess that kind of wraps up our little discussion on tracking. We've yeah. got to go and get ready to go teach this to the semester folks. Um But, uh, yeah, so if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review, share it with somebody, do something useful with it. You know the drill. Uh, Thank you for spending this time with us this morning, and we hope that you enjoy getting out on the landscape and looking at marks on the ground. Yep. So thanks for listening. Have a great day. You have been listening to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. For more information on our professional wilderness guide training programs that are college accredited and GI Bill approved, visit us on the web at jackmtn.com.